Amen. Good morning, church. 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we'll be, and so if you have your Bibles, please turn there. It's going to be where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. We're continuing in our study of the life of David. We're going to interrupt it for a little bit starting next week. We have a, a short season of breaking away from this study um, to take kind of a, a summer preaching series to hear from some friends from outside of our church um, for four or five Sundays, and I'm very excited about that. You'll hear more about that and the reason we do that in the coming weeks. Today, though, we're going to dive back in to our study in the life of David. In David, we have an honest study. It's so honest. I love the scriptures. They don't, they don't try to hide anything. We have this honest study about what it looks like to be a human, fully human, who is loved by God. You see, David, if you know his story, is amazing in some moments, and he's truly terrible in some others, he's, he's hard to like at points. But the golden thread of his life is not his own valor. The golden thread of his life is not his own morality. The golden thread of his life is, is not his own success. The golden thread of his life is the covenant faithfulness and incredible love and mercy that God displays towards him again and again. And we're going to see it in play here in this text in a remarkable way. Second Samuel Chapter 9. The context is that David is at his peak. This is the high point of his life. He had captured all of the land that the people had been promised prophetically. Uh, he had driven out the enemies of Israel and for a short window is living in relative peace for that time and place, right? The peace is relative. We're going to be told in the next chapter that there's seasons when kings go to war just because that's what you do. Oh, it's spring, wartime, right? Okay, so we've got like football season in America. They've got like war season. So peace is a, is a relative term, right? But, but it's relative for that time and place. He's at peace. He was the undisputed king over the whole region, over both Israel and Judah, which is something that couldn't be said earlier in his life. And it's something that won't be said of him again later in his life. It's really looking good for King David. And it's the highest moment of his life as king. And it's at this moment that we see one of the greatest examples of merciful love and godly grace that we have from any human being acting in the Bible. Uh, Alan Redpath, a, a great scholar on the life of David, calls it one of the clearest human pictures we have of God's grace and mercy towards his people. And it's David who enacts it in 2 Samuel 9. Now, before you get too excited, David's our guy, I know. If you know the narrative, you also know that David was about to be completely terrible. In the very next chapter, exhibiting one of the worst examples of human selfishness and sin and violence that we have from any of our biblical protagonists. People are interesting, aren't they? Do you know any? They're interesting, right? Even if you know yourself, you're interesting. You're not one-dimensional. People are interesting and confusing and complex and lovely and terrible and incredible, but also sometimes awful. What a thing it is to be a human being who is loved by God. And we have that embodied in the life of David for us, right? Let's go. I've got some explaining to do, so I'm just going to read you the text. I'm going to offer some context for us, and then I've just got three observations for us at the end today. Verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 9. 
It's a world record for intro, under four minutes, and we're into the text. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Sanctification happening before your very eyes. Is he maturing? I think he's maturing. Praise the Lord. <laughs> David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul? Let's just stop there for a second. This wouldn't have been an unusual question for a king at his height in the region who had recently come into power from a different bloodline from the previous king, right? So power normally passes in monarchies down a bloodline, right? So when someone comes over and takes over from a different bloodline, they would ask, is there anyone left from that bloodline? But the motive would have been destruction of that competition line. When power was passed from generation to generation, except when a coup d'etat interrupted that transfer, then the incoming king would always, in that context in history, would always kill every member of the old king's family. Now, now friends, we find that morally reprehensible, right? And, and, and rightly so. But this would have been the full expectation of the people under a king. It would have been part of the societally accepted rights of the monarch. Listen, just a little footnote here to that. I hear all the time about how society is just getting worse and worse and worse. And when we look in some sectors, it seems true, right? But an honest reading of history... <laughs> reveals a more complex picture, doesn't it? We don't go like, oh, the, the new president just gets to kill the old president's family, right? I mean, maybe it should be open to consideration, but we don't, right? Like, we don't get to do any of these things in transfers of power, right? And so there is a common grace in which we can say to God, oh, thank God for the common grace that we see his hand moving societies roughly forward, though they do tend to meander all over the place. But read on. Murder and power, praise God, isn't what is on David's mind in this instance. What's he looking for Saul's grandchildren for? David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Here's what's on David's mind. What's on his mind is his love for Jonathan and a deep desire to show kindness to anyone who might be from his line. Now listen, uh, English is a complex language and some of our words just get a bit like kind of meaningless and so we're not sure what to do with them. The word translated kindness here is one of the most wonderful words in Hebrew scriptures. It's a remarkable word. It has no English equivalent. The word is chesed. Right? Chesed. It, it is a word that speaks primarily, usually when it's uttered, of the mysterious, faithful, covenant-keeping love that God alone has for his people. It is a supernaturally inspired love that commits and acts and sacrifices and serves and goes the extra mile and lays itself down for the object of its affection. It isn't purely an emotional love that you can step into and out of. It is a determined covenant commitment that keeps that commitment no matter what. We have so stretched the little English word love, right? You can love your spouse and you can love a particular pizza topping, right? It's like, and, and we don't see the irony in that. And so we make this thing kind of meaningless. It means so many things that the translators have to work really hard to find different words that reflect the way that hesed is working in different contexts, right? Sometimes they use faithful or steadfast love. It needs a descriptor in front of it. Sometimes they say kindness, like here. They go, ah, kindness maybe? Sometimes sacrifice. And often the translators rest on the word 
mercy, which is clearly at play in this text. Chuck Swindoll has got a wonderful commentary on the life of David, proposes that hesed in this instance can really rightly be translated as grace, unmerited favor, mercy, the kindness of God. It is a loyal love that shows grace and mercy and compassion and keeps all of its promises. It's a love that imitates divine love. It's chesed. And what you're going to see is that all of this is at play in what David wants to display here to anyone he could find from Saul and Jonathan's bloodline. He wants to show kindness. He wants to show covenant commitment and loyal love through an act of mercy. He wants to show grace to whoever he could. Why? Well, if you go back in the narrative, David made promises to both Jonathan and Saul that he would not do what ordinary kings would do, that he would not remove their bloodline from the face of the earth when he rose to power. Let's just look back for a reminder. First Samuel 20, 13 and 14, Jonathan makes David promise. He says, you will rise to power. You will be king. And when you do, please do this. May the Lord be with you, he says, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the hesed, steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your hesed from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And David promises in that moment, he says, I promise you when I rise to power, hesed will flow from my family towards yours. And then remember 1 Samuel 24, 20, where Saul Right, caught out by David, makes David swear. He says, swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring. He just cut off the end, end of his robe. Okay, you can do that, but don't cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And look at verse 22. And David swore this to Saul. Friends, at least 15 years pass. Life is slow and quick at the same time, Right? The scriptures want to be honest with us. Lots of time passes, but covenant keeping is still in David's mind. He looks around at the blessing and the mercy of his life and his desires to see how he can keep his promises as a result. He isn't, at this stage anyway, he's going to get worse. He declines. He isn't seeking only to consolidate power or to get himself off of some rash promise he made when he was young. He doesn't go like, yeah, guys, I was in my 20s, right? We promise stupid stuff in our 20s. And so, my bad, but I'm king now, and I'm going to do what kings do. No, why? Because godly love keeps its promises. Dale Ralph Davis makes the point that even though it has been 15 to perhaps 20 years since David made these promises, they still motivate his current present-day behavior. He says that the lesson there is that for the believer, listen, The sacred promise made in the past directs and determines our acts of fidelity in the present. For the believer, the sacred promise made in the past directs and determines what fidelity looks like in the present. Part of what it means to love people in a godly way is the ancient and almost lost art of keeping our promises. Are you keeping your promises? Verse 2. It was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I love how the narrators just give us these opportunities, right? In there, it seems almost superfluous, but he's like, Yeah, I'm your servant. He replied, You called me, I'm here, I'm the guy, all right? 
And so the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God, that I can show Hesed to? Ziba said to the king, there's still Jonathan's son who is injured in both feet. And the king asked him, where is he? Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Machir, son of Amiel. Right? So David discovers that his friend, his covenantal friend, Jonathan, has a living adult son. But this living adult son is in a really challenging situation. 2 Samuel 4 describes to us what happened to him. And I want you to just imagine the humanity of this for a moment. Just, just try to put yourself in this story. It must have been so painful, physically, emotionally, uh, in, in every way. This is after Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle, and Mephibosheth is five years old. Imagine being a five-year-old boy who's second in line to the throne, and then your grandfather and your father get killed in battle. All of your uncles get overthrown, and what looked like a secure and certain destiny to you is suddenly under threat. And your nurse runs into your room and swoops you up in her arms and says, we've got to go, Mephibosheth. We have to go now. They will kill us. Imagine the trauma going through the minds of that family as they want to vacate the palace. She's fleeing for her life and for his. And look what happens. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him and fled. Picture the scene running with a five-year-old boy with his dangly legs just too long, right, to be comfortable to run with. He's in that awkward in-between phase of trying to carry a, a five-year-old boy. And as she fled, in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. What happens is she falls and breaks both of his ankles so badly that they're never able to heal to an extent where he's able to walk again. Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the trauma? Think about the vulnerability of this boy. The only surviving member of a cursed line, badly crippled his whole life, and living a life of fear of and hiding, hearing all the time that if David tracked him down, he would kill him, and he's got no way to physically defend himself. And so they hide him in Lodabar, which sounds okay, but it's not, right? Low means none, and Dabar means good. Imagine the town they call no good. I'm sure you've got some in your brain, right? Okay, Dallas, I don't know, but some other places where they, they, they go, just no good. They hide him in a place literally called no good. I don't imagine it's an awesome place for, for a grandson of the king who is crippled in his legs to spend his time. And friends, it's in a day and age when those with disabilities were treated with disdain and shame as if they were cursed. In fact, if you read First and Second Samuel with any sort of attention, you, you will notice that there's a troubling context in the chapter surrounding this in which the lame and the blind are labeled with mockery and derision by the enemies of David. This story is going to show a truly countercultural approach and posture that the people of God are supposed to show towards those whose society view is weak, whose society view is a hindrance, whose society views as not normal. My sister-in-law Claire 
um, Sue's sister suffered a traumatic birth injury and as a result has had severe disabilities, physical, mental, her entire life. She turns 50 next year, but her disabilities are to such an extent that she needs 24-7 nursing care. And when we get the opportunity to visit her, and COVID's been very cruel in this instance, but when we get the opportunity to visit her and I watch those nurses care for Claire, who cannot care for herself, and they do so in the name of Jesus Christ, you know what I see? Chesed. God's mercy. The different value of God's economy. He says, this is a wonderful image bearer. <laughs> she is not cursed, she is loved. She is not an inconvenience. She's a bundle of mercy and of God's divine love. Can you imagine the fear, the resentment, the bitterness, the anger that must have shaped much of Mephibosheth's young life, so much so that he gets named Mephibosheth. Now, you might be just going, that is such an awesome name. If I have another son, or perhaps even daughter, Mephibosheth <laughs> is the name I'm choosing, right? Don't. Don't. Let me tell you why. You know what it means? It means seething dishonor. And it's probably not his birth name. If you do some studies in First Chronicle 9, 40, we think he's called Meribal at birth, right? And then he's called Mephibosheth later on, which means seething dishonor. What do you think the posture of Mephibosheth is? Happy-go-lucky? No, he's seething at the dishonor that's been brought to him and his household. And who is the blame? David. All of the suffering of him and his family, all because of David. And then he comes knocking. They would have dreaded this day. Surely it means death when David's men finally show up. Verse five, so King David had him brought from the house of Machir. Can you imagine what that journey is like? Thinks he's going to be executed personally by the king of Amiel in Lodabar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. Picture the scene, he's crippled, he cannot stand. I'm not sure how they, how they move him in, but as he gets in front of David, he doesn't try to prop himself up in pride. He doesn't try to take some kind of pseudo stance of strength. He fell face down and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant. He replied, now I know this is geeky, but, and, and we don't really have time, but there's such an interesting thing that happens in the text here. You'll notice that when David speaks with Ziba and, and, and when he is usually referenced in relation to other people at this stage in his life, the writer will refer to him simply as the king or sometimes in an informality like here with Ziba as King David. But here with, with Mephibosheth, and we don't see it with many other people before him, he's just David again. Isn't that beautiful? The writer is giving us some hints of the posture. Just two verses before, he says, King David says to Ziba, right? Now Mephibosheth comes and falls at David's feet, and it just says, David. <laughs> There's a humility in this moment. And he is calling Mephibosheth by his informal name in gentleness and grace and hesed. He looks at him, oh, seething dishonor. You have no idea what I'm about to do for you, right? Don't be afraid. David said to him, since I intend to show you chesed <laughs> for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields. This is multi-generational wealth given back, right? And you will always eat meals at my table. Only the king's sons get to do that and his and finest warriors. That's it, that's it. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you take an interest 
in a dead dog like me. Then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. So provide food for him in abundance, but where he's going to sit is with me, right? Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, right, we're back to the formalities. Your servant will do all my Lord, the king commands. Now, spoiler alert, if this was a movie, and it should be, right? It would be so good. Most people wouldn't be able to watch it, right? But it would be so good. But if this was portrayed in a play or a movie, there would be a slight sinister note to Zeba's adherence. The director would find a way to light Zeba in a slightly sinister way. And if you watch movies like I do with annoying people who I love, like my wife, she would go, there's something up with Zeba, right? And ruin the entire plot line because she's so insightful. And you'd be like, well, now we're done, right? I don't need to watch four more seasons because she just pieces this stuff all together, right? Look what it says. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mika. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. Right, my goodness, <laughs> What a text. There's so many different avenues and points of emphasis we could focus on in our study of it. Here's how I want to tackle it just briefly this morning. Now that we have a little better understanding of some of the dynamic that's at play in this remarkable interchange. I want us to focus on the notion of chesed, of grace, of love driven by mercy. And I want to wrap it up in a statement of biblical theology that we know to be true. Not just from our study of this text, but of all of Scripture. The statement is simply this. It's kind of the fundamental premise that holds this all together today. The statement is this. The people of God must be those who are able to receive loving mercy and to extend loving mercy. The people of God must be able to receive mercy. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. And must be able to extend mercy. It's the natural outflow of what it means to receive it. So, so, so that's what I want us to consider as we learn this week. How do we receive then this loving mercy of God? And how do we extend it? Let's do that by examining three questions and answers provided for those concepts in the text. Who is this mercy for? Who is Hesed for? Right? What is mercy like? If I know how to receive it and I know how to give it, well, what are we talking about here? What do I have to receive and what do I give? And then lastly, what response should mercy elicit? What does it drive out of our hearts? Who is chesed for? What is chesed like? And what does chesed do? What, what response should it drive out of us? First one, who is loving mercy for? This is a catechesis, right? So we ask a question and we answer it in faith, right? Who is mercy for? Mercy is for the weak. That's the answer. Mercy is not for the strong. Mercy is only reserved for the weak. God's chesed is only reserved for the weak. It is almost impossible to overemphasize the weakness of Mephibosheth in this story. 
crippled in exile, needing to run for his life, but utterly unable to do so. He has no way to fend for himself, no way to promote himself, no way to manipulate outcomes in favor of himself, no way to defend or deflect away from himself. And so what does he do? Does he disguise his weakness? Does he try to minimize it? No, he exposes it fully in front of David. He exposes the fullness of it. He lies at the feet of David. Can you imagine that scene? Think about it. He can't get up. And there he lies, weak and wounded at David's feet, absolutely at his mercy, face down. You don't get a weaker posture. And it's most of our worst nightmare. We do everything we can to avoid this day, and yet it is this posture and this posture alone that elicits the mercy of God. It got me thinking this week. If the Christian life is one where we have to receive mercy. What do we believe the gospel is? It's not karma, right? It's not reward for good effort. It's mercy in spite of bad effort, right? So therefore, in order to get into it, we have to receive a gift. We have to receive something we don't deserve. We have to receive mercy. Then perhaps, friends, listen, and examine your life in society. Then perhaps in the economy of the gospel, our biggest strengths are our greatest weaknesses. And our greatest weaknesses are actually our surest strengths. Oh, dear friends, we do everything we can to not look weak. (laughs) And yet it's our safest posture and position in the whole world. Got me thinking about Ephesians 2. You see, we see a tremendous gospel foreshadow in David's loving chesed towards Mephibosheth, that the son of David, Jesus, will come and display to his people. And when Paul looks back on this chesed, this mercy, this grace, look at what he says. He says, you need to understand how weak you were. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't just lying down. You had no pulse. You had no way to fix you in which you once walked following the curse of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, you were under a rule and reign of a tyrannous leader, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. You were an enemy of God, Paul says. I don't like it either, but that's what he says. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Goodness me. Paul, that's, that's, that's a lot, right? He says, that's who you were. You must remember who you were. But God, being rich in mercy, that word's in the Greek, so it's not hesed, but it's the same principle. God being rich in hesed because of the great love with which he loved us. Does he save us because he hates us? Does he save us because he despises our weakness? No, he saves us out of an abundance of love even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. (laughs) And it doesn't even stop there. He says, and raised us up. He, He got us to stand up on our crippled feet and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He invited us to dinner with the king for the rest of our lives. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his hesed in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And just in case you're tempted to stand on your own feet, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Friends, oh my goodness. Are you able to receive mercy? 
I'll answer it for you. <laughs> Allow me to poke and prod for a minute into our suburban lives. If you're pretending to be better than you are, stronger than you are, braver than you are, holier than you are, well, then you aren't looking for mercy, you're looking for reward. You aren't face down before the king in weakness, you're trying to prop yourself up in a pathetically transparent delusion of strength. The scriptures make it clear to us, we are like Mephibosheth. We are cursed twice over, just like him in our helplessness and in our hereditary opposition, we're born into it. And yet, because he is rich in mercy, God makes us alive with Christ. But we must remember where we come from. We come from weakness. So many of us fear weakness more than anything else. We fear we'll be found out. And yet it's the requirement for mercy. You know what the scripture tells us? He won't break a bruised reed. He won't snuff out a flickering flame. But you've got to be open to admit that you're flickering <laughs> and that you're bruised. And then he comes along and strengthens and nurtures and supports and raises us up and seats us at the table. Friends, are you able to receive mercy? Maybe the thing you fear the most, your honest moment of repentance is actually your saving grace. Where you confess to God who you really are and where you allow others to see it, maybe that's your greatest strength moment, not your weakest. And as a result, friends, listen, oof, I'm just in your business this morning. Are you able to extend mercy? Christians should be the most merciful of people. If hesed flows to you, can it flow from you? If you aren't in the place of Mephibosheth in the story, but you find yourself by God's grace in the place of King David, able to extend some degree of hesed to the weak that, that he has in this moment, can you do it? Are you doing it? Who needs mercy from you? Who is weak around you and knows it and just needs chesed, but you won't give it? Oh, friends, open your hearts. It's the way of the kingdom. Okay, second question. Everyone okay? Praise the Lord. What is mercy like? What is it like? It's the question. The answer is, it's extravagant grace. It's over the top grace. It's abundant grace. David doesn't just spare Mephibosheth's life. He gives him the rights of a son, which in that culture is unbelievable. He gives him land and income and an inheritance, but most of all, he gives him a place at the king's table. This is a place of such honor and dignity and privilege that it's actually hard to describe and to, and to parallel in today's society. I love the way Chuck Swindoll described it. Listen to this. He said, picture what life would be like in the years to come. At the supper table with David, the meal is fixed and the dinner bell rings and along come the members of the family and their guests. Amnon, oh, clever and witty, 
comes to the table first. Then there's Joab, one of the guests, muscular, masculine, attractive, his skin bronzed from the sun, walking tall and erect like an experienced soldier. Next comes Absalom. Talk about handsome, right? From the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, there's not a blemish on him. Then there is Tamar. I'm going to tell her story. Oh, tragic. Beautiful, tender daughter of David. And later on, one could add Solomon as well. He's been in the study all day, but he finally slips away from his work and makes his way to the table. But then they hear this clump, clump, clump. And here comes Mephibosheth hobbling along. He smiles and humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's sons and the tablecloth of grace covers his crippled feet. God's love for us is extravagant. That's totally over the top. It seats us at a table where we have no business to being seated. It bends my mind when I consider the extravagance of God's mercy and favor towards weak people like me. Remember Ephesians 2? He makes us alive with Christ and then he seats us in heavenly places. Why? Why? Because we deserve it? No. That he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. So that he can point to the angelic host and say, look who gets invited to dinner. And they're like, I cannot believe that Muppet gets in, right? How does he get in? He said, grace, mercy, now serve him his food. He's welcome at my table. Friends, there is no poverty in the grace of God. It's a well that never runs dry. He goes above and beyond in blessing us. One more quote from Swindoll, I promise. I could have just read his whole sermon um, on this topic and maybe I should have, right? But uh, I'll be done after this one, right? With quotes anyway. He says, when Mephibosheth sat down at the table of the king, he was treated, like just, uh, he was treated just like any other son of the king. That's the way it is now. And the way it will be throughout eternity when we feast with our Lord. Can you imagine, Swindoll asks, sitting down at the table with Paul and Peter and John to break bread with Abraham and Esther, Isaiah, and yes, King David himself, along with Mephibosheth. And the Lord will look at you and he'll say, you're mine. You're as important to me as all my other sons and daughters. Here's the meal. Oh, what a day that will be. Friends, are you able to receive the extravagant chesed of our Lord? Let me help you answer it. Are you brave in repentance? Or are you hiding stuff back? Do you believe in the abundance of his mercy? Do you believe that it's enough? Or are you tempted to think this morning that his grace for you ran out at some point and there's some things he just can't cover. They have to stay in the recesses. They have to stay in the shadows. Are you able to be content with your lot in, the, in this world? Knowing what awaits you in the next? Oof. If we believe this, right, it changes some of our striving, doesn't it? I want you to be successful. I just don't want you to find your joy and your hope in it. The call to Christians to be content. Are you hopeful for a future with him? 
Do you look at it with joy and with hope, knowing that you will receive the mercy that awaits you in Christ? Okay, last question. As recipients of that sort of extravagant grace, are we able to give it to others, right? Are we able to extend this? Are you, are you extravagant in your grace or do you just hold? Do you hold about, okay, I'll let you off the hook, but that's it. Or do people experience extravagant mercy from you? All right, last question. What response should mercy elicit? What kind of people should it make us? Or what kind of person did it make Mephibosheth? Mercy should elicit dependence. It should elicit contentment. It should elicit trust. And it should elicit joy. Friends, I don't have time to read the whole story. We're at 36 minutes. I know you know that, right? And I know that. I see this little timer here deducting my salary as we go, right? Um, and so I don't have time to read the whole story. And there's not a lot to deduct. It's just, whoa, it's going down. It's crazy, right? It's like filling up with gas. What is happening, right? I don't have enough time to read the whole story. But this isn't the last we hear of David and Mephibosheth. Do you know that? This story is famous, but, but there's more encounters between David and Mephibosheth. If you read on in 2 Samuel, David's son Absalom overthrows David as king and sends David and his household on the run. Again, right? Mephibosheth doesn't join David and his army. He doesn't go with him and David's family. He stays behind in the king's house in Jerusalem. And when David tries to find out why, he's like, where's Mephibosheth? Enter Ziba. Right, Sue picked it, episode one. Ziba was no good, right? And Ziba goes, oh yeah, Mephibosheth. No, he stayed at home um, because he's actually on Absalom's team and he's enjoying the palace and he's living the high life and he wants you to die. And David's hurt, he's hurt in this moment. So what does he do in a rash moment of leadership? Won't be his only one. He says, okay, everything Ziba, everything I gave to Mephibosheth, I give to you, right? He just believes him. Right? Then Absalom dies, David returns to his home, it's an incredible scene, and here's what he finds, it's so moving, 2 Samuel 19. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, just imagine, David's re-entering the holy city and, and, and waiting for him at the gate is Mephibosheth. Also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet. What this means is, right, he hasn't cut his toenails and he hasn't washed his feet in a society that wears open sandals, right? It's a sign of I'm in mourning. It's a sign of I've given up. It's a sign of I'm desperately despondent. He hadn't trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. It's like a, like a 19-year-old boy, first year of college, right? Um, and he comes back and you're like, what happened, right? But David comes back and Mephibosheth is not in a good way. This is not the way for someone in the royal household to present himself. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Mephibosheth, why didn't you come with me? My lord, the king, he replied, my servant Ziba betrayed me. Ziba lied, right? Ziba watched the grace happening to Mephibosheth and said, I can get in on this. I can get in on this. Actually, your servant said, I'll saddle the donkey for myself so that I may ride it and go with the king. Ziba, who's supposed to be responsible for transporting Mephibosheth, leaves him behind, right? Ziba slandered your servant to, to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king is like the angel of God. So do whatever you think best for my grandfather's entire family deserves death from my lord the king but you set your servant among those who eat at his table so what further right do i have to keep on making appeals to the king what happens next is so perplexing it's such a weird leadership decision from david but david starts to give into pragmatism he looks around ziba's become very powerful right 
Ziba has a lot of assets, a lot of people who follow him. And so Ziba goes, all right, I don't want to, I don't want David goes, I don't want to isolate Ziba. And so he says, okay, Mephibosheth, you and Ziba, you share 50-50, right? Which is a super weird thing to do, right? But hurt people hurt people. But look at the posture of someone who has received grace beyond measure. What does Mephibosheth say? Does he go, oh, that's not fair. He betrayed me. I've been faithful. Look at my toenails. Look at what's going on in this place. Mephibosheth said to the king, instead, since my lord the king has come to his palace safely, let Ziba take it all. Mephibosheth is like, David, I get you? I get to be in your household? I don't need your stuff. You gave me mercy? I'm all yours. I don't even care about Ziba's sin. That's his issue. I get mercy, so give him mercy. You should meet him with chesed. Friends, as I have been thinking this week, I've realized that there are two responses to God's grace in this story. One response is the face down, trust, worship, dependence, and love of Mephibosheth. The other is the desperate manipulation and power grabbing of Ziba, who's around grace, he sees it in action, but he just doesn't want to appear weak. One receives grace in weakness, the other thinks he can get in on its rewards through power and deceit and manipulation. Where are you? How are you responding to the chesed of God today? He has it available to you in Christ Jesus, but the only way to secure it is weakness. And that's the ongoing life of the Christian. Think of how Jesus described the kingdom. <laughs> the loads, they're gonna be lifted up. Anyone who thinks that they're up, oh, they're gonna be at the bottom. That's how it works with grace. Friends, while we, if you're a Christian in this place, while we were crippled and in exile in a land that is called no good, he sent for us. And he offered us a place of abundant grace at his table, a place that can never be taken from us, but we cannot earn it and we can't fake our way into a feeling of belonging at it. It's a table of grace and only the weak are invited. Will you join? I was supposed to be preaching at the North Congregation this morning. We found out with 15 minutes to go that the stream wasn't working, so I drove down here and may have broken um, seven of the 10 commandments on the way. <laughs> You can ask me which seven afterwards, right? It's complex. <laughs> but as I was driving by God's grace, I felt the spirit impress upon me, Psalm 23, five and six. I wonder if this is in David's mind. Look at what he says. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows and so surely, surely, Goodness and mercy. Any guesses what the word is? Chesed. Surely God's chesed shall follow me all the days of my life. And I, I, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Um, help us just to respond um, in weakness and in honesty this morning. Father, I pray for those who don't yet know you. They thought Christianity was a performance and they couldn't do it. <laughs> I pray this morning that they hear that, no, there's grace for who they are. There's mercy for where they're at in weakness. They don't need to pretend. 
Father, also I pray for those who know you, but are living lives of pretense, thinking they'll gain acceptance in the church and even with you through appearing to be stronger than they are. Oh, Father, just release them from that deceit and that lie. Help them to enjoy your chesed like never before as we sing today. May many of us find ourselves crippled in our feet. May our knees buckle from underneath us. May we find ourselves on the floor before you, asking for your mercy and sure and sure and sure that we'll receive it. I can't wait to eat at your table. (laughs) I can't wait. In the meanwhile, cover me with your grace. Cover us with your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.